The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn about the week ahead in stocks and the outlook for global energy markets. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Jonathan Waghorn, Manager of the Guinness Atkinson Global Energy Fund. The ticker is G-A-G-E-X, and the Guinness Atkinson Alternative Energy Fund. That is G-A-A-E-X. Jonathan is dialing in today from London. We really appreciate that because it must be dinner time where you are, Jonathan. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hungry, but I'm okay for a bit yet. Okay, hang, hang on with us for half an hour. <laughs> so with oil trading above 90 a barrel and energy stocks really on fire, it seems a good time to take a closer look at the sector. So both of you, Jonathan, Ben, thank you for joining Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. So. Let's start with the big picture on energy. What has driven oil to 90 a barrel from what was essentially a negative price for West Texas Intermediate in the spring of 2020? Um, It's essentially because demand has recovered very, very strongly post-COVID and OPEC quite simply have taken control of the market and they've done it remarkably well. So as demand has gradually recovered, bear in mind, demand fell in the COVID year, nearly 9 million barrels a day. That's you know nine times the size of the oil demand collapse we saw in the global financial crisis. Um, it's recovered then by sort of five and a half million barrels a day last year. It's going to recover again by about three and a half this year. OPEC has been very quick to take barrels off the market and to only add barrels back in uh, on the basis of their desire to achieve a price that is at a at a reasonable level. And they, in terms of their economies, are looking for sort of $70, $70 plus. So they're recouping a little bit of what they've lost over the previous couple of years. There's very little other oil that can come into the market in the short term. So very good market control ultimately by OPEC. They're, they're in the driving seat here and controlling prices. And where where does this put the US shale business? Is it not much of a factor these days? It's still very, very much a factor, one that we keep a, a, a very close, close eye on. Um, if you go back and think about the, the, the size of the, of the U.S. system, the U.S. onshore is about 9 million barrels a day. It's a very short cycle, very fast payback, very quick return uh, operation. And the rig count there and the number of wells being drilled and production typically will react to the you know, underlying prices. That's the way it's always worked in previous cycles. So the Permian rig count... Permian being the kind of the biggest area for U.S. unconventional has gone from 100 rigs to 300 rigs to 100 rigs to 400 rigs. It, it fell back down to 100 in 2000 in and around COVID. And it, it's rebounding. It's now sort of 250 to 270 rigs. So that there's activity picking up the uh, the industry. The drillers are getting back to work. The EMPs are, but at a lower rate than we have seen in previous rebounds. So there is a, a good deal of capital discipline happening in the U.S. onshore space. 
as the companies are, are reacting to, I guess, shareholder pressure, a desire for greater free cash flow generation, for greater dividends, for greater share buybacks. Don't go ahead and just drill, drill, drill and, and produce extra oil that puts pressure on the market that forces OPEC to you know, essentially drop prices and, and, and get things back under control again. So really, the US industry is one at the moment, and I stress at the moment, is showing very, very high levels of discipline. The current earnings season that we're going through, we're seeing slightly different opinions from, let's say, Conoco and, and Exxon talking a little bit more about growth, Chevron and Hess talking about more conservatism. The US onshore industry is not out of the uh, out of the question here at all. It is just acting at the moment in a much more disciplined manner. It's very hard to complain about that, isn't it, as a shareholder? Uh, I think um, I think and, and again, given that so many of the EMP companies, you know, you have large shareholders in management, they are seeing that they are getting a, a positive reaction to that kind of story, that kind of action. Um, and, and yes, without spending more money, they're probably doing better through their discipline and they're getting the benefit of, of, of higher prices and, and, and OPEC controlling. If and only Lauren other if only other industries could follow that model. Go ahead, Ben. I was just going to interject. I was, I was curious, when you talk about the uh, conservatism that uh, Chevron and Hess are showing versus sort of the uh, the more growth of uh, um, focus of an Exxon or, or, or a Conoco, do you see one as being better, the market responding to one better than the other, or are they just uh, different ways of, uh, of kind of framing the same question, actually? Yeah, I, I guess we haven't seen a great deal between those in that it's been very short term that those commentaries have, have, have come out and they are all kind of bigger companies with obviously lots, lot, lot kind of wider businesses. But within the, the pure play EMPs, um, going back over a couple of years, there has been a clear preference from the market for capital discipline. A very, very clear, very, very clear story. What we look out for now will be interesting to see that the first big US EMP that breaks ranks. Let's see how the market deals with that one. It doesn't appear like it's going to be happening in the very near term, but that will be a very interesting data point when it comes. So Russia is obviously a big player in the oil market as well. And we've had a question from Tony. I think I'm going to move it up. We typically take listener questions at the end of the call. But this one is particularly relevant now. How would a Russian invasion of Ukraine impact U.S. oil and natural gas markets in the short and the long term? Wow. Um, so I can talk, I guess, about Russia and oil markets. Putting that in terms of uh, invasions into the Ukraine is probably a little bit kind of outside of my my comfort zone. But look, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. Russia, Russia is a big producer. So we're talking pre-COVID, 11, 11 and a half million barrels a day of oil supply. They cut very aggressively with OPEC down to nine and a half. They're back up to, to about 11 or so now. So you know, the world needs Russian oil. Uh, Russia needs its own oil. Bear in mind, those are numbers out of a market of 100 million barrels a day. What we've historically found in and around invasions, political conflict and war, etc., is that quite often energy just continues about its day-to-day -day business. It is a very, very big dollar earner for Russia in this situation. And it wouldn't be entirely surprising if we saw a lot of the trade continue. We saw that with you know, Iran and Iraq, let's say, in the, uh, in the 1970s. So um, there would clearly be some disruption uh, in the near term. There would clearly be some fear. 
um, we're going to see prices go up. We saw that with the Kuwait war in, um, in, in, in the first of the Kuwait wars. There'll be a spike. But ultimately, we wouldn't expect that to be particularly long lasting. However, trying to forecast activity in and around invasions is particularly tough. So, so please take that with a, a little bit of a pinch of salt. But that, that's what history would show. Well, that's useful on its own. And we won't ask you to comment on the invasion or, or lack thereof. So do you have a target price for oil this year? Some people on Wall Street are talking about 100 a barrel, some some more than 100. Yeah, do you so, have a target? Well, a, what a target is and where you think oil might go are probably two different things. Um, oil can most certainly go higher from here. Absolutely no question. You, the history of the commodity is that you see prices spiking to the upside. And in this situation where OPEC has control of the market as demand recovers, prices will go up until somebody squeals, until we see demand destruction. Um, and it's not at this level. It is a higher price than where we currently are today. If you were to think about the cost of oil within world GDP, $100 a barrel for Brent oil would mean that the world was spending about 4% of GDP on oil. Now, that's getting to kind of, we believe, kind of the, the, the pain point to a certain extent. If you look at 2008, when we had the squeeze, 2010 and 11, when we had the squeeze, you're talking about 5% or even 6% at, at, at a spike level. So you could easily be talking $125, $150 a barrel before all this starts to kind of you know, roll over again. As an average price, however, that's a different story. So we have an average price that for this year is more like a 75 uh, rather than a 100 i.e. if we see high levels like that, it's likely to be a spike as opposed to something which is sustained on a long-term basis. Looking slightly longer term then, you've ultimately got to say, well, what is the price in this market that makes sense for everybody? What's the price that keeps OPEC happy? What's the price that allows the US shale system to grow at a reasonable rate, but without growing too fast? What is the price that allows the world economy to grow at a reasonable rate? And it's probably at the minute something in the order of $65 to $70 a barrel as, as a longer term price. What we're going through here is a is a real kind of recovery of demand, OPEC keeping control. So yeah, I wouldn't expect these prices to be sustained, you know, particularly long term, but I wouldn't expect them to be priced into equities at the minute either. Interesting. I imagine if you get up to 125, 150, that's a political problem as well. It's most definitely a political problem. I mean, from a from the point of view of gasoline prices in the US, as an example, that's always a really, really difficult, uh, a difficult topic. It is a raw input into the world economy, full stop. Um, so, you know, low prices and particularly high prices are, are really not good for anybody. Longer term, you know, if we have particularly high gasoline prices, the relative economics of electric vehicles improves. People will buy electric vehicles and you'll see then demand will disappear longer term. Something to consider for sure. So we've heard a lot about the obsolescence of fossil fuels, the coming of the EV revolution and so forth. But there's no evidence yet that we're done with traditional oil and gas. Jonathan, when do you expect demand to peak and what are the implications of that? Yeah, so we I mean, we, we expect demand to peak probably in and around 2030. Um, I expect it to be a reasonably shallow, uh, flat peak. Um, our expectations of that of that year have probably come forward a couple of years in the last couple of years as well. So things are moving this way. The drivers behind that ultimately are the electrification of transportation. So oil, 70% of all oil usage is in transportation. 
So where we start to see electric vehicles, etc., that is oil demand being displaced. And we have some reasonably aggressive forecasts on the electrification of transportation we have had for a number of years. So we think that 20% of all new car sales will be electric vehicles in 2025. A half of all sales will be electric in 2030. And then all new vehicle sales will be electric in 2040. And we run those numbers through. We still end up with oil demand growing to 2030 because oil is used elsewhere. It is used in petrochemicals. It is used in heavy vehicles. It is used in air transportation and shipping. There are a lot of other areas of energy demand that cannot be electrified quickly and easily. So despite EV growth, we would still see oil demand going in to the end of this decade, a reasonably shallow decline thereafter. Um, you know, the use of oil is, is, is not over by any stretch. That's good to remind people. So I want to come back to energy stocks later in the call and the energy transition, but I want to give Ben a chance to talk now. And I'm particularly interested in the latest market news, which is all about mergers and acquisitions. Rumor has it that Amazon and others are mulling a bid for Peloton Interactive. And today we learned that Frontier is buying Spirit Airlines for almost $7 billion. So let's start with Peloton, Ben. It's the ultimate stay-at-home stock. It's had a mighty fall from a share price in the 160s, I believe, to the mid-20s. It's about 29 today. What do you think the company might fetch in a deal, and how likely is a deal? Well, I think the market gave us has given us a really good estimate of that, um, you know, given where it uh, leaped uh, once the news started to break. You know, if we're at 29 now. Um, MKM analyst Rohit uh, Kulkarni um, had two different ways of looking at it. Um, first, he compared it on a valuation basis to other um, highly valued kind of techish growth stocks, uh, things like Netflix, Lululemon, and Roku. Um, they all trade 25 between 25 and 35 times next year's fiscal um, or next fiscal year's EBITDA. And so that would put, uh, if you put uh, Peloton's uh, EBITDA at around 350 to 450 million, you get a price target of around 34 to the $36. The other way to do it is just to look at Fitbit. Um, it was uh, bought by Google or by Alphabet um, for uh, one times uh, EV to sales. Um, he thinks that uh, Peloton is worth, uh, you know, 2.7 times. It's just a much better company, has a broader reach than Fitbit does. Um, and so if you uh, say, if you agree with that valuation of 2.7 times EV to sales, you come out with a stock that's worth about $30. And, you know, that's really within the ballpark of where we are now. I mean, I think the big question is um, going to be is the, uh, you know, the founder of the company who hold, holds a lot of its stock is going to be willing to sell for something like, you know, 30 to $35, given that the stock was up uh, much higher than that at, at one point. Um, and on the other hand, what are companies going to see when they start looking under the hood um, as they, and exploring an actual uh, acquisition? Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk just about, um, you know, a lot of, I guess, unsubstantiated reports, I'll put it at this point, of production being suspended and things like that. But I think companies need to get comfortable with uh, what uh, growth is like there, what the business is, is like there. But we're going to learn a lot more about this come um, tomorrow uh, when Peloton reports earnings after the close. And what do you expect from earnings? I expect that they're not going to matter all that much. That's what I, that's what I expect. <laughs> um, this is one of the cases where the, the stock is so beaten up. Um, it's been trading on uh, so much just, uh, I, can we call it rumors? Um and and reports coming out, CNBC has Fair been uh, breaking, uh, you know, has been 
filing stories based on internal documents, but nobody else has followed up on followed been able to follow those yet. So it'll be interesting to see how much is confirmed in terms of production and trying to right size that. But I do think a lot of the focus will be on uh, on the on the acquisition, on a possible mm -hmm. acquisition. And I suppose the company won't say very much about it at all. Exactly. Right. But that's interesting. It's, I, I can imagine the dilemma if you had a stock pushing toward 200 and suddenly it's 30. Hard to imagine selling at such a low price, but yeah, we'll but see what happens. I mean, hopefully, I, mean, I, would, I would say hopefully, but, uh, you know, the stock might, given everything that's happened, I mean, you would maybe have never thought the stock would get as high as it did in the first place. And so maybe there is some level that does make sense um, if you kind of like average out the uh, um, the, the real the, the real spike there that happened in demand in the stock price. Seems like we should bring in a psychologist as well as bankers. Very possibly. On this, on this perspective deal. Let's move on to Frontier and Spirit. Tell me why the merger of two ultra low cost carriers makes sense at the moment. Well, Kellen's uh, Helene Becker, who's been doing this for a long time, actually has four reasons. Um, and the first is that um, it, it gets bigger. Um, it would create an airline that's about 7.5% of U.S. industry capacity. Um, and that will allow it to compete um, with the bigger carriers. And it's not just competing for passengers. Um, one of the other reasons that uh, it is, um, uh, she thinks it's a good idea, is that there's a real pilot crunch out there. Um, by her numbers, Delta, United, and American are each hiring 100 to 200 pilots a month. And wow. a, lo a lot of them are coming from smaller airlines. So by getting bigger, um, this will make it easier for Spirit and Frontier to compete for those pilots, but also to keep their own. Um, it's also uh, going to allow um, the companies to keep growing. There's a sense that uh, they, they've gotten kind of, they've grown as, as fast as they could in their current shape, but by combining, they'll be able to grow um grow for longer um, and, and faster than they, they can now. Um, and the final one, she says, is that uh, they really shouldn't have issues with um, the DOJ or the Department of Transportation. Um, there's not a lot of uh, route overlap there. Um, I'm a Colorado kid, so um, <laughs> well, not a kid anymore, but uh, I, I'm, well, I'm going to say that <laughs> I, I'm used to these front, I, I, you know, these frontier airlines with the pictures of the cute animals on the uh, on the tails and everything. You know, I've seen those and those really serve um, Frontier mainly has its capacity in the West. Um, Spirit, on the other hand, has more of its capacity in the East. So combining them makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of that over that lack of overlap. And it also makes it easier to make the argument to um, to regulators that they should allow it to go through. Absolutely. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me. So what's the broader outlook for M&A this year? Um, well, it seems like it's going to be a continuation of what we had before. There's going to be a lot of it. Um, but because of the focus uh, by regulators on trying to uh, limit monopoly power, um, at least uh, one person, uh, Citigroup Scott Cronert, um, doesn't expect the deals to be very large deals. Um, what we saw last year was that there was a, a, a huge surge in the number of M&A transactions, but the value of those deals was actually below pre-pandemic levels. Um, and th that's the kind of thing he expects to continue. Um, you know, as activity picks up, M&A picks up usually, but the deals will be on the smaller side um, just to avoid the regulatory scrutiny. Jonathan, do you see much M&A in the oil patch when you look at over the next year? I Difficult one to um, 
I guess a difficult one to forecast. The, the 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 big factors at play here is how do the major companies position themselves for the energy transition, and there may well, well be some you know deals to be done from that. On on the flip side, the value of the paper of many of the companies that would do the acquiring is pretty low still, so they don't want to be. It's not great currency at the coming uh, you know at, at the current time. Um, they're starting to become that much more cash rich as oil prices are helping now to kind of rebuild balance sheets. And certainly it's building up now towards there being more M&A. It wouldn't surprise me in, in, in comparison if we go back to the, the cyclical upturn from 1998 to, to 2008, we saw the creation of the super majors. And that was all from a very kind of defensive positioning. Let's get together. Let's cut costs. Let's improve our return on capital employed. Let's build businesses that can really last. It wouldn't surprise me to see some of that happening, you know, in the in the year or two ahead. But it's uh, it's always a difficult one to forecast. But there there's plenty of opportunity out there, it seems. You mentioned the energy transition, and I wanted to circle back to that. Tell me a bit about the timeline you see. And we'll start with that. And then I've got some follow up questions. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and this this can take a two hour discussion. It's um. <laughs> It's decades. How about two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be a nice quick one. Um, it is literally decades. It is twenty or thirty years that that this will be happening over. So, you know, the transition is one where we see growth of variable renewables. So that's wind and solar taking uh, market share and, and, and generating electricity uh, at the expense of, of of coal. Natural gas still has a role to play. I've talked about oil still peaking probably in and around twenty thirty. Um, so. We can have a transition. We can have rapid growth in the variable renewables whilst the fossil fuel story still kind of continue, or, or, although coal suffers. It's one where we, we see the transition, but we also have tremendous growth in demand that needs to be satisfied. So we need to see all the different forms coming together. We think of this very much as renewables and fossil fuels as opposed to renewables versus fossil fuels. And key to all of this is efficiency. It's much easier for us as a world to be more efficient in what we consume and to allow that decarbonization, that transition, uh, as opposed to adding more and more variable renewables, which requires then storage and hydrogen and, 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 and extra complications to make that available to us at the time that we want it to be. Driven by economics, um, driven by policy to a certain extent, but very, very much economics being the key driver of it. And providing, we believe, some very, very interesting long-term stories that will play out on 10, 20, and 30-year views. So many people are eager to hop on board now, um, fearing they might miss the great transition. What is the best way to invest in the coming transition at the current moment? Um, well, you're speaking to a man that manages a fund in the area, so I have a very simple answer to that. Um, you know, we, we try to build a we try to build a fund of, of companies that are well-placed to benefit uh, from it. I think the transition, however, provides opportunities on both sides. So you, you're, you're questioning, uh, is kind of leading to the, the fear that oil demand is going to disappear. We, we don't think oil demand disappears. We think oil companies, oil and natural gas companies have good businesses ahead of them. How do you invest in that? Well, look, I mean, our fund, as an example, trades on nine times earnings for this year, has a 5% dividend yield. There's a 10% free cash flow yield. So this is very, very low in terms of in terms of absolute valuation. It's trading at about 0.35 times price to book of the of the S&P 500. So a real 
discount story, very non-consensus, very contrarian opportunity in the conventional energy companies because they're increasingly being kind of priced for their businesses disappearing. Um, and we don't think that happens in the transition. On the flip side, you've got all the exciting growthy stories, the wind, the solar, the efficiency names, and they increasingly are within the kind of the ESG realm. So they're very, very much in favor at the current time. Um, solar inverters, as an example, wind turbine manufacturers. So they face 10, 20, 30 year long-term growth stories uh, and some very interesting opportunities. They trade on very different multiples. Our fund there trades on around 21 times PE for this year. Dividend yield is more like one and a half percent dividend yield. We're trading at a small premium to the MSCI world. So there's a premium for the growth, but the growth is good. You know, we're talking over 20% growth this year and next year in earnings and long-term normalized growth, maybe 13, 14% per annum. So very different stories around a major transition that's happening in energy. Uh, and this is all likely if we're going to move towards a, a net zero scenario, a one and a half degree warming scenario, that we're underestimating the amount of investment that will be required. So you might say one would appeal to a value investor, the other to a growth investor. Is that the way to think about it? I think that's a, it's a very, very good way of thinking about it. I think the conventional energy story, I think you've got to be slightly more tactical. Um, the, the, the transition, the renewable names, the sustainable energy names, uh, I think you've just got to accept that they're at a, a higher valuation to the market reflecting that growth. But I'm pretty confident over a long term view, these companies are going to do very, very nicely indeed. So, yes, they appeal to different investors. They're both volatile. So, you know, there are opportunities being kicked up all the time. And, and you know, we would say when when things always look really, really good, that's probably the time to be nervous. And when things look really, really bad, that's the time to be thinking about them. For sure. So one more energy question, then I want to pivot right back to Ben and talk about some earnings, then we'll get to some listener questions. Um, we talked before about the tension between satisfying shareholders' demands for cash returns and spending a lot on exploration and production. Can you tell us what, if you had to name a company or two, who's doing a particularly good job of balancing these two sorts of demands? Yeah, good. Uh, good question. I think the the US EMP industry, exploration and production industry as a whole, is doing is doing a pretty good job in what they have done in the last couple of years. Um, within that one, I'd, I within that group, I'd probably pick Pioneer. So Pioneer Natural Resources. That's PXD as a ticker. So they are the big dominant players in the Permian Basin. They've been around for a long time. They have the highest quality acreage and assets. Uh, you know, in the in the industry there, and they have a, a large amount of undeveloped acreage. So they were pretty quick in coming up with a variable dividend structure. So they return excess profits to shareholders in in, in sync with the oil price, and that's that's been impressive. Um, if you were then to look at some of the larger companies, you could think of the the super majors as a group. They are capital allocators. That's how they keeping themselves in business all these years. We'd pick probably BP within that group at the moment. So the ticker, again, uh, being BP, they've had to restructure themselves very aggressively post the Gulf of Mexico spill in 2010. They now have a very strong pipeline of new oil and gas projects. So to, to deliver the growth and the story, at the same time, they've managed to improve the profitability of the existing assets. And they're also, we think, positioning themselves very well for the decarbonization and the energy transition, the dividend yield about 4%, free cash flow yield 
well over 10% this year. So we, we picked them out as being a pretty good example. I'm also very lucky I run a fund, so I get to pick 30 stocks. Um, so it's always, you're always the one that you highlight is never the one that works. But there's a couple of examples for you. And I know it's mostly an equal weighted fund. It is an equal weighted fund as well. So 30 typically equally weighted positions. Excellent. Thank you. I want to go right back to Ben for a moment before listener questions to talk about some coming earnings this week. Ben, let's go through Pfizer, stock everybody's been watching. We'll do a speed round of this. Um, okay, love it. Pfizer's been uh, a, a great performer. It's up 10% this year, though it's fallen, or sorry, 10% over the past three months, though it's fallen 10% this year. Um, but there's clear support around $50, um, which could really be uh, helpful in trying to figure out what to do with the stock. Um, it's expected to report um, a profit of 87 cents a share. That would be up from 42 cents, uh, sales of 24.2 billion. Um, what people are going to be watching is first, uh, COVID. Um, How's it doing? What's the market share like? And what's happening with the pipeline there? Are they going to be able to build uh, or to create an Omicron-specific vaccination? Is this something that will have a longer tail uh, than I think the, the I think people are hoping it has a longer tail? Because um, if it doesn't, there there could be problems. Um, people are going to be wondering about the other uh, drugs in his pipeline. It uh, has a flu vaccine, uh, for instance, that is due in the uh, first half of this year. Um, we'll see what they have to say about that. And finally, investors are going to want to know, what are they going to do with all that COVID cash? It's really been a windfall for Pfizer. Um, and I think they want to see that that money is going to be used wisely. Makes sense to me. All right. Coke and Pepsi are also reporting this week. They often get lumped together, though they're very different kinds of companies in some ways. Tell me what the outlook is for each of them. Well, Pepsi's had a much easier time than Coke largely because Coke uh, doesn't have that kind of snack business that Pepsi does. And Coke also has just a larger business at restaurants and things like that. Um, and so Coke has been uh, down, or sorry, it was up 8.6% uh, over the past three months, and it's uh, risen 3.3% this year. Um, and I think that's largely because there's this expectation that as uh, Omicron wanes, the business is going to pick up. And it's also happens to be kind of in the right place at the right time with all this market uh, volatility. People are finally buying staples again. And we're seeing that with uh, with Coke, even though the uh, the company's its earnings are expected to drop a little bit from 41 cents uh, to 41 cents from 47 cents uh, this quarter. Um Pepsi is a little more exposure to um, some of the cost inflation that's out there, but it's also done quite well. It's up 5.8% during the past three months, but it's fallen 1.1% this year. That's uh, better than the S&P 500, though. Um, both stocks are near an all-time high. Um, its earnings are expected to come in at $1.52. That'd be up from $1.33. Um, it could be a messy print, though. A very solid sales growth, a little light on earnings. Uh, this is from RBC's Nick Modi. Um, but uh, there's also this sense that uh, the long-term growth expectations for both earnings and sales is pretty stable. And they are. The stock could continue to work even if earnings don't blow things away. All right. Let's talk about one more Walt Disney. Ah, Disney. Um, well, kind of everybody hates Disney right now. It went from being loved um, because it had it was a reopening play and it had and it was Netflix, right? They had both. Um, and now it's hated because the reopening didn't happen the way it's supposed to. And competition for streaming and things like that um, has been 
really extreme. You need new content. The growth hasn't been quite as fast as, as people want. Um, so they're going to, um, you know, people will be watching to see how those businesses are doing. Um, earnings are supposed to rise um, to 63 cents. That's up from 32 cents. Um, there, there's, there are reasons to be excited about, though, and people really dislike the stock now. And so when sentiment is that bad, it can set it up for some upside. Theme parks may also do better than expected. Um, and it, it, now they just need to see, you know, are we getting people, uh, is growth there in the streaming business? Um, might not be as high as it was at the uh, peak of the pandemic, but are the people signing up so they can watch shows like Boba Fett? So I think that's what's going to be watched there. I'd be kind of optimistic heading into this number on Wednesday. That sounds good because we've had a long reign of pessimism there. Yeah. So let's get to some listener questions. They are pouring in mostly for Jonathan about the energy market. Ashish asks, why are companies like Shell priced at four times free cash flow when we will need natural gas for at least 15 to 20 years, if not longer? He's really <laughs> asking, why are the stocks so cheap? I do wonder sometimes why the stocks are as cheap as they are. I mean, think about it from the from from a fund point of view, putting very, very long term behind this. Yeah, this has been a, a sector that has been derating since 2007, 2008. Uh, you look at it relative to the, you know, look at it on absolute terms. Price to book in 1998 was about four times. It's now at sort of one and a half times. Um, we, we need these companies. We need this investment. Um, I don't quite understand why they are priced for the destruction that they are. There's a lot of volatility. Oil prices have been very poor recently. So that's some of the reasons why we, we, we've had issues. Um, we would like to think, you know, looking slightly longer term, if you bake in a, an oil price of, of sort of 65 to $70 a barrel into this sector, there's the best part of about 30% upside. And, and, and Shell would be a pretty good example of a stock within that grouping. Okay, we have a question from Lee. Do you think that Exxon, Chevron, and BP will still be companies of this size 20 years from now? They'll be very different companies in 20 years from now, but I think they still exist. Uh, Size-wise, yes, I think they're probably, they maintain this size. That I mean, there may be, obviously, M&A act activity. We may be not talking about those as companies, but they have been around over 100 years. They've dealt with energy transitions before. They understand the big picture uh, and and I, I would back them to be positioning their businesses in economically attractive, you know, reasonable return areas to sustain those businesses and those models for many years ahead. So they won't be the standout winners. They won't be the standout losers. But I do believe they still exist and they will become much more energy companies than they will be at the minute as oil and gas companies. That's a good point. Um, Jonathan asks, what do you think of the Chinese oil companies as long-term investments? They tend to be valued at a lower PE level. Um, yes, they are valued at a lower PE level. We own two um, full positions in our, in our funds in, in, in China. So we have, we have exposure. We like the discount multiples on PE. We like the higher dividend yields. Um, China is a, an energy-hungry uh, country in 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 an enormous order in that they still consume 65% of their energy from coal. They need to move into natural gas, um, and, and despite the pace of electrification of transportation, there, there is still just the growing number uh, that, that, that means that oil demand is going to remain very robust indeed. On the flip side, you've got corporate governance; they're state-owned. So you know to what extent do you want to discount the valuation to deal with those to you know, to deal with those issues, but. 
we believe that a, a, a balanced portfolio makes good sense. Um, and to have some Chinese names, to have some Russian names, these are the big kind of demand and the supply areas. It makes sense to have some exposure all around, but they are not without risk. That is always going to be the issue, uh, and, and they are priced accordingly. Um, we're happy owners of, of the Chinese names that we have in the portfolio. May I ask what those names are, as listeners will want to know? Um, we have some PetroChina. We have some Sinopec at the current time. Got it. Okay. Um, looking for questions I haven't asked. Mark asks, which oil companies will have the greatest buybacks and dividend increases? You may not be able to answer that fully. Yeah, I won't be able to answer that completely fully as to who's getting the the, the biggest today. Um, in absolute terms, it's the biggest companies that are going to have the biggest buybacks. Look at Shell talking about $8 billion of, of, of buybacks. I think in the peak in 2008, I think Exxon was buying back $15 billion a year. So maybe there's still a bit of running room to go there. The dividend increases, I think the dividend increases will be pretty, um, they'll be positive, but they won't be outlandish um, this time around, I think because of the capital discipline. Um, although companies like Pioneer, as an example, with their kind of their formulaic dividend, they, they could well be the names that end up you know, at the end of the day with probably the bigger increases linked to price and cash flow generation. Okay. And last question for you. Um, can you speak for a moment on the difference between the European and U.S. oil companies in terms of their focus on climate and ESG issues? And we're, we're talking here about the super majors. Yeah. Um, the difference is about 10 years, I would say. <laughs> um, so they, they really are very, very different. Um, if we look back to the European oils, they were getting out of oil sands, you know, five years ago um, and dealing with an awful lot more shareholder pressure and activism in and around the climate. Um, Exxon and Chevron have been much more resilient to that, but we now see the changes coming through. So, again, these changes take a long time. So uh, you know, they are quite dramatic in their differences Shell has said, the CEO of Shell a few weeks ago said, even if oil prices go higher, even if we get higher free cash flow and cash flow generation, we will not be spending more money on oil and gas development. That's quite an interesting statement. I don't see those kinds of statements coming out of the uh, the US majors uh, at the current time. So there really is quite a big uh, difference in mindset and approach but i think that reflects yeah five to ten years of of, of shareholder pressure in europe that the, that the u.s guys just haven't suffered we could spend hours on the subject i, I want I'm, to close I'm, I'm very lucky to do exactly that laura <laughs> <laughs> i can i can understand and i envy you it's a fascinating topic the the entire energy complex but ben i want to close with a quick question for you we've got the consumer price index for January coming out on Thursday, this is the big inflation number that the Fed is watching, as is Wall Street. What is the consensus estimate? What's your estimate? Um, well, I think it's going to be um, actually, I don't have the consensus in front of me, if you can believe that, Lauren. Um, <laughs> but uh, I believe it's supposed to um, come in at, at around, uh, gosh, actually, Lauren, I'm going to have to pass on this. I okay, we'll get, back, we'll get back to you on barons.com with that one. And with that, I think we will wrap things up today. Jonathan, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Go have dinner. You've earned it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for, for having me on. Thank you for listening, everybody. And um, a, good a, luck out there. A pleasure. And Ben, thank, thank you. you as always. You, Thanks. You, you've covered the waterfront well. Tomorrow, Barron's Live will examine a raging debate among the inflation conscious. 
Bitcoin versus gold. Is Bitcoin inflation-proof digital gold or more of a speculative tech bet? Barron's crypto editor, Darren Fonda, will discuss the topic with Matthew McLennan, co-head of Global Value at First Eagle Investments. Should be an interesting call. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in today and sticking with us to the end. We appreciate it. Stay well, everyone, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.